Best Practices in Emergency Notification, Webinar 2. Hello and welcome to the Best Practices in Emergency Notification Webinar Series. I'm your host, Steve Hardiman. In this educational series, sponsored by E2Campus, we bring you webinars presented by your peers, decision makers who have first-hand experience responding to actual emergencies on their university and college campuses. They will share their expertise and answer your questions about how they made decisions, what actions they took, and the role their emergency notification system played in protecting the safety of the students, faculty, and staff to whom they are accountable. Today's webinar is Issuing an APB from an Emergency Notification System, Lessons Learned from Millersville University. Your presenters from the school are Dr. Aminta Bro, Vice President for the Office of Student Affairs, Communications Director Janet Kaskus, and Patrick Widinger, the Director of Safety and Environmental Health. Your first presenter is Janet Kaskus. Hello, Janet. Hello, Steve. <laughs> Janet Kaskus, APR, is the Communications Director for Millersville University and has been with the school since March of 2005. She has over 15 years of public relations experience, serving as Director of Communications for Metropolitan State College of Denver for over eight years and at the National University in San Diego for two years. She was also a working journalist and has worked in high-tech PR, assisting Fortune 500 clients. So, Janet, set the stage for the events to come by giving us an overview and some background about Millersville U. Thanks, Steve. Millersville University is a liberal arts college. We have about 8,000 students, 7,000 undergraduates, 1,000 master's degree students. Um, about 5,000 of our students live either right on campus or very close to campus in off-campus housing. The rest of the students are commuters. Um, Millersville University is located in a rural setting. We're here in Amish country. We're located about one and a half hours west of Philadelphia and one and a half hours north of Baltimore. We've been around for 150 years since 1855. I believe our students and faculty are really second to none, but I might be a little prejudiced. Uh, one thing that I find unique about Millersville is the ability that our students have to, um, as undergraduates, to work one-on-one -on -one with uh, faculty on research. For example, I just talked with a freshman this week, and she had come from a lab where she was examining aquatic bugs with a professor. And that professor is often called upon by law enforcement officials to determine how long bugs have been dead as part of homicide investigations. So it's pretty cool the research opportunities that are available to our students here at Millersville. Thank you, Janet. Now let's talk about the events and issues surrounding the lockdown. Here are your next presenters. First, Dr. Aminta Bro. Hello, Dr. Bro. Hello. Dr. Aminta Bro became the Vice President of the Office of Student Affairs at Millersville University in March 2008, bringing with her over 25 years of experience in higher education. 
She previously served as Dean of Students at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. Prior to that, she served as Assistant Provost of Drexel University in Philadelphia. Dr. Bro earned her Ph.D. in Counseling Psychology from Temple University, her Master's from the University of Pennsylvania, and her Bachelor's from Temple. Also presenting is Patrick Whitinger. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Patrick Whitinger is the Director of Safety and Environmental Health at Millersville University. He has over 20 years' experience as an environmental health and safety professional, beginning as an industrial hygienist and air quality specialist for a major analytical testing laboratory, and then for the last eight years, managing all aspects of the EHS program at Millersville University. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Industrial Hygiene and Safety from Millersville University and a Master's degree in Safety Sciences from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Okay, Dr. Bro, let's begin by walking us through the events leading up to the lockdown. All right, let's begin with the actual date, which was April 1st, when this event happened. Uh, But leading up to our lockdown, we began receiving the university uh, information reports that students were concerned about one of their fellow students in a classroom. And the reports were received by first a faculty member and then students began emailing to the police department that they were concerned about uh, actually attending class with this individual and they were fearing for their safety. Uh, The emails uh, regarding the students were forwarded to the university police and they immediately began working with our residence life staff actually uh, to try and locate the student on campus. Uh, At that same time, very closely uh, aligned with the reports, we notified the cabinet, the vice presidents and the president of the situation and the fact that we were trying to locate the individual who was uh, of concern. Uh, Following that, uh, just to point out, all these events were occurring within one hour or less. Uh, The following that you'll see uh, include police, they were notified. There was a search underway for the student of interest. The cabinet was notified. And then the first uh, emergency notification text message uh, alert went out to the campus. And again, to put this a little bit more into context, as I mentioned, this was happening on April Fool's Day. So why is this relevant? Well, I think we all know that uh, because there it's tied in with uh, some of the reactions we received on that day. Uh, the fact that it's April Fool's Day and the question became, well, is this a joke? A very sick joke, but is this a joke? Uh, At the same time, even though you uh, prepare for emergencies as best you can, uh, things never happen quite the way you would, you have practiced them. And so on this day, again, to uh, kind of frame uh, what happened today on this day, there happened to also have been a fire in one of our academic buildings. And that occurred uh, almost at the same time that we began our lockdown. Uh, The question became for those, uh, for the cabinet and for the emergency responders, were the two incidents connected, the student that we were seeking who had threatened his classmates, as well as the fire that was now taking place. In addition, Uh, We were leading up to the anniversary of Virginia Tech. Uh, That incident was, the anniversary of that incident was less than two weeks away. Uh, 
And so there was a, a question about, was this related at all? So these are some of the questions that we were posing and that were going through our minds uh, that we needed to try and address. So I'm going to ask uh, Patrick to uh, start here and, and give you a little bit more of a perspective on that event on the day. Hey, thank you, Anita. I, uh, I was, uh, as Director of Safety and Environmental Health, I was uh, responding to the fire which was occurring in the uh, in one of our larger academic buildings. Uh, what, what the fire actually turned out to be rather minor. It was a, a motor on an air handling unit that overheated and was creating smoke in the building. Uh, turned out there wasn't actually any real fire, but the building was filled with smoke, and we were evacuating the building, um, and the smoke detectors had gone off, and uh, we were evacuating the building just as the first text message was sent out. So we had people who were standing outside the building. Obviously, we had evacuated it uh, when we sent out the text message, um, and the uh, myself, our university police, our local fire department had just arrived at the building. Um, at the same time, uh, we also have to frame this a little bit by understanding some prior training that our cabinet and our emergency responders had had uh, the previous summer where we did a tabletop training exercise of a mock emergency happening on campus. And the scenario used by the facilitator for that training was to have a series of multiple emergencies happening one after the other on our campus. So our cabinet members, when they heard the fire engines responding to the building fire at um, our one academic building, and having just received the information about us looking for this student of interest who had made threats, they reacted per their training. So that's, that's an important thing to keep um, in the back of everybody's mind about how all this played out. This is Janet again to uh, talk a little bit about the media coverage. Uh, there was a lot of media coverage after the incident, but there was also media coverage going on during the incident. Um, some of the television reporters and newspaper reporters had signed up for our text alerts, so they were among the first to receive the alerts when they went out, and they showed up on campus almost at the same time as the uh, emergency personnel and law enforcement did. And so they were on campus for the duration of the, of the lockdown of the incident. And in fact, one of the uh, local television stations broadcast live during the, uh, the most of the event. And uh, when they weren't broadcasting live, they were running a scroll at the bottom of their screen that said, stay off campus, Millersville University is in a lockdown. And actually, this did help us because people did stay off campus. They saw that, and they complied with the request. Well, this week's lockdown at Millersville University is generating a positive response on campus. The school's emergency alert system, which keeps students informed in the event of an emergency, is gaining popularity. Fox 43's Kevin Johns tells us how it's impacting students and staff. Lindsay Tomeo is a senior at Millersville University, just months away from graduating. Yet this morning, she became one of a growing number of students signing up for Millersville's MU alert system. If the events hadn't happened on Tuesday and really given me um, a wake-up call to the seriousness of what can really happen um, 
I probably wouldn't have. The system uses text messages to notify students, staff, and faculty of weather-related cancellations or, like Tuesday's emergency, when they were notified of a potential threat on campus. It only takes uh, one emergency such as we had, and, and the interest uh, really skyrocketed. The university has seen more than a 40% increase in enrollment since Tuesday. More than 1,000 new students and staff signing up. Nadine Kern was one of the early ones. She signed up for service at the height of Tuesday's lockdown. It was kind of scary because I didn't realize how serious the situation could have been. So if I would have known that there was a serious situation going on, I wouldn't have come to campus. The university is even adding more layers to its security alert system. This summer, it will invest $100,000 to install loudspeakers around campus. The campus community hopes there isn't a next time, but if it does arise, more people will be prepared and informed. In Millersville, Lancaster County, Kevin Johns, Fox 43, News at 10. It only takes about 30 seconds for someone to sign up for the service. In fact, the university says a little over 100 students signed up Tuesday between the time of the first text alert and the final alert, notifying everyone the security risk was over. Well, we're going to talk next about the, uh, the emergency notification activation and what happened. And as you can see by the, the slide, that we sent out a total of four emergency notification text messages along with four emails. And the time from the very beginning, the first uh, text message we sent out, which was at 11.03 a.m., and about an hour and a half later, uh, the event was uh, over. It, it elapsed about an hour and 40 minutes. Let's look at each of these messages. The first one that went out, the first message that went out went 11.03 a.m., and you can see what it said there. Emergency, stay off campus. If on campus, lock yourself in a room and await instructions and we directed people to our website to follow for more information. Then around 15 minutes later, we sent out a follow-up message with more information for the uh, people who had signed up to receive the emergency notification messages that the student on campus was a potential threat to the community and that they were to stay where they are and not go outside. And the third message is around 12.20 p.m. where we had made a decision that we were going to put out this individual's name uh, as a person of interest and ask people to contact the police immediately because we were still um, looking, looking for this person. And the last, the fourth and last uh, emergency notification text message that went out declared that the emergency was over and the lockdown had been lifted because we had um, successfully found this individual. The uh, next slide will show you how the registration enrollment for the emergency notification system, what we call MU Alert, uh, increased throughout the event as the four text messages went out over that approximate hour and a half period. And you can see that quite clearly that pe uh, people on campus and uh, actually some people off campus like parents were actually signing up to get these text messages as the alert or I'm sorry, as the emergency was unfolding. We were able to document that through our uh, statistics. And um, you can also see the change in enrollment as it rose during the event unfold here. Uh, both, most of the people were, of course, signing up for the, uh, the emergency notification text messaging. Uh, we learned after the event that prior to the incident, uh, prior to April 1st, we had about 2,000 students, faculty, and staff who were registered for what we call MU Alert, which is the Emergency Notification Text Message System. Um, 
during the enrollment, we were able to track that about 127 uh, people had signed up. And after the enrollment, after the incident, within a very short period of time, within a couple days, we saw that our enrollment really skyrocketed and it jumped up to about 4,000. It almost doubled. And now we're going to talk a little bit about how the lockdown unfolded. Right, and at this point, again, we'll go back to uh, the first alert. Uh, again, some thought on that day since it was April 1st that it was a joke. Uh, but I would. Uh, it's really important to emphasize that most of our students in the entire campus reacted as if it were a, an actual threat. They took it seriously, and that perhaps is an indication in this post-Virginia Tech environment that students uh, are getting more practice uh, in high school, and so when they come to our campus, they really have an idea that they should be serious about these type of alerts. And so our students and across the campus, they actually took it as a real threat. The MU Alert enrollees uh, received the messages. Uh, those who received messages informed those who had not. And word of mouth uh, is not to be uh, underestimated. People stayed indoors. They locked or barricaded the doors. Uh, we have one report of a faculty member pushing the piano in front of the door. Uh, so they took this seriously, and so it had a very good outcome. Responders had to move the evacuees from the building with the fire to adjacent buildings as well. In addition, uh, with the other, the other challenge was while we had uh, evacuees from the building fire out on the street and we had to move those individuals into adjacent buildings because obviously we couldn't put them back into a building that was filled with smoke, we also had the fire department staff actually on site and we had to be concerned for their safety so we also moved those individuals into a nearby building uh, in, for a short period of time. We also have a multiple maintenance staff who are out and about on campus doing various uh, repair and maintenance activities, and we had to call those individuals over the maintenance radio system to tell them to stay where they were and to not get back in their vehicles or go back out on campus uh, and, and move from building to building as they typically do. Now about... Twenty minutes later, after the initial message uh, went out, uh, an, an additional, the second alert was sent, uh, as Patrick indicated earlier, and it gave the community more detail about the threat and just pretty much reiterated the warning to stay inside. For the next hour, police continued to look for the individual but could not locate him, unfortunately. And there were calls coming in, though, offering assistance. Uh, they were actually coming in from all over as you might expect, when this type of alert goes out, individuals want to help. And so we're very pleased that we got the kind of response that we would hope for with our campus, people wanting to try and be of some help with more information. Yeah, that's very, that's very true. We had an outpouring of, of offers to help from the, the local community, whether that was local police, CERT teams, ambulance, so you name it. People were just really very, very open in trying to help us during that uh, hour period we were looking for this individual. And then we sent out the third uh, alert message. Uh, police, in consultation with our cabinet, decided there was a need to find this individual quickly, uh, and that's when we added the individual's name as a person of interest to the third uh, text message that went out. And within 25 minutes of this message, um, responders had located this individual and took him into custody, and we ended the emergency with the fourth MU alert message at 12.43 p.m. 
Now, how the people, uh, how how we located this individual is actually very interesting because with the third text message, when we added his name to it as a person of interest, it was really our students who located this individual for us in, in our Ganser Library. Uh, what the students did, uh, which was just very, um, for students, uh, it's, it's like breathing air, they went on to uh, Facebook and MySpace once they had his name to see if by chance he had a Facebook or MySpace account, and bingo, he did. And there was a photo of him on his account. Uh, those individuals in the library looked next to them and said, that's him. Uh, and using that photo, they were able to use the social networking sites, find him in the library, and text message the police to say, he's here in the library. And that's how we very quickly located him and uh, took him into custody um, without incident. No one was injured. Um, the individual, once, once he was taken into custody, we're happy to say um, uh, he, he is now receiving and did receive the medical treatment that he really needed. Uh, he's no longer a student here, but we still know that he has received uh, the appropriate medical treatment that he really needed. And so what we can say is that uh, the alert system was instrumental in bringing this to Fortunately, uh, uh, as positive a, of an outcome as possible. People reacted fast. They uh, reacted appropriately. They worked together, uh, again, through word of mouth, communicating, as well as through the various technologies. There was no panic. They took the message seriously. And uh, we were able to handle these multiple emergencies uh, through the training, the preparation that we had had in the past. And uh, the communications uh, issues, may, you know, made it uh, more difficult. Uh, but we were able to respond appropriately to the campus. And that brings us nicely to the lessons learned from this incident on April 1st, 2008. And as Dr. Burrow was saying, one of those was communication issues. We found that uh, the cell phone traffic availability of cell phone communication in our area crashed or was very limited. Uh, so that made communication difficult for the emergency responders and for the cabinet and others who were trying to manage this uh, emergency because we relied pretty heavily on cell phones to talk to one another. Uh, fortunately, they did not totally collapse. We did have some cell phone communication, but uh, it was very much diminished. Uh, and that, of course, was due to the large volume of text messages and cell phone calls uh, as a result of the, text the emergency text messages going out, parents calling students, students calling parents, them texting each other. Um, it really overwhelmed the capacity of our local cell tower to, to handle that volume. Uh, we also found out that our website crashed, and this, again, was due to volume overload. We directed people to go to our website for more information, and that's exactly what they did. Unfortunately, our website didn't have uh, a, the bandwidth to, uh, to handle that volume, and it, too, eventually crashed. Uh, another lesson we had to learn was uh, we needed to do faster notification to our county uh, emergency 911 system. We actually got the text message alert out so quickly that uh, we weren't able to uh, get word to county 911 that we were going into lockdown, and we, uh, the county found out that we were going into lockdown, actually, when people started dialing 911 to ask what's going on at Millersville. 
so that's another thing we learned. Also, uh, we were we did communicate rather quickly to our local school district what was going on, and as a precaution, they went into a lockdown. Uh, it's important again to note that our local school district's high school, which has about 1,900 students, is literally located right next to our campus, within a couple hundred feet. Um, we found that it was difficult to manage the multiple emergencies at one time. As, as uh, Dr. Burrow said, it was difficult. We did manage to do it, but it was certainly a challenge. And we also found out that we needed to do something for those individuals who were outside and needed to move into buildings, uh, but people were actually closing the buildings to prevent people from coming into it. Well, you know, those are two things that just can't coexist in the same universe. You know, you can't have people you need to move indoors if you're locking the doors and preventing people from moving in. So we needed to talk about something uh, called rally points, which will be areas for the people outdoors to get to, which will be safe havens, um, other than going into the buildings. And with the lessons that we've learned, we have uh, implemented some changes. One is, as uh, Patrick was uh, referencing, uh, we are now uh, notifying the county 911 uh, if an emergency alert is sent out. Uh, we've talked to our local cell tower company to try and alleviate some of the issues that uh, we encountered, as uh, Patrick was describing, where the system is just on overload. Uh, we've implemented what we call web light to free up the bandwidth on our home page. And what that essentially means is during the uh, event of an emergency, in, uh, most of the graphics on our web page uh, are eliminated. It's mostly text that is up on the uh, web page so that only the uh, critical information that has to go out can go up on our web page. But uh, we've done away with most of the uh, amenities, if you will, the uh, bells and whistles on our uh, web page so that we can get out the vital information to the campus. And also, uh, we have found it's very helpful for individuals who are out of the area. Typically, they want to go onto the website and see what new information is up there so it allows easy access for parents and families who are at some distance. Uh, we're looking into getting guest cards and satellite phones, and we've obtained more radios. We found that the radios, uh, more of the uh, two-way radios, are much more effective when we need to contact one another on the campus. And so we've distributed those to uh, essential personnel, uh, including your presenters here for today, so that we can have easy access to one another. The school district administrators uh, that are in our area now have, they're signed up to receive our alerts. And so they will know in real time what's happening on our campus. And then in addition, we've installed a new outdoor mass notification system. We've tested that out uh, over the summer months and alerted our borough, uh, our surrounding community, that we were going to be testing that mass notification system to ensure that they understand as well when we're encountering an emergency that they will uh, know also what to do. All right, moving into the Q&A, which we're going to be doing next. But first, let me ask uh, Patrick and Dr. Bro, uh, what did you find was the uh, most surprising uh, part of what you added to yours that, you, that this event told you, wow, we need this and we didn't know we needed it? Something that caught you off guard. I would say the, the, the biggest thing for me was, uh, because I was out in the field uh, at the site handling it, was what do you do with the people who are outdoors and where do you move them? Uh, because you do want 
to get them indoors and how do you do that when you, and as we said, coming up with rally points and also how do you communicate to those people that they, uh, who are outdoors who uh, we found that many of them did not know there was an emergency going on because those people were not checking their text messages on their cell phones. There were simply people, students and people walking between buildings, walking between classes. Um, I guess that's another thing that should be said is all this was happening, a change of class uh, for us, which was right about 11 o'clock on that day. So we had a lot of people moving between buildings. How do you let them know to move to these rally points? Well, that's where the mass notification system, which is an outdoor uh, public address system, that's why we put, it's one of the reasons we uh, installed that is so that now we can, while at the same time sending out information through text messaging and emails, we can also make a broadcast alert outside to people and inform them that they need to move to the safe rally points. So I would say that's my biggest lesson learned. I would agree with Patrick and would add that uh, having a redundancy in your systems is, is really critical because not everyone uh, is going to have their phone on, especially if they're in class or may not be paying attention to uh, their phone. Uh, so the need to have uh, different types of systems, sending out uh, emails, uh, also having what we're looking into now is the reverse 911 system with our telephones, so that telephones in the classroom will ring in the event of an emergency uh, to alert faculty members when there is a, an emergency on the campus. And uh, we also now have the mass notification system. So having redundancy and not just relying on one method of communication. I think that um, is, is so very vital to any system that is developed on a camp college campus today. We're going to turn it back over to Janet Kaskis to talk about the aftermath and the public's reaction and so forth to this. Janet? Thanks, Steve. Um, in essence of time, because we do want to get to uh, some of the questions, I'll go through this pretty quickly. But we, we did have great response from the media. As I said earlier in the presentation, they, they really helped us. Uh, being here on campus during the lockdown um, and getting the information out that, that we were in lockdown was helpful. And also, we were uh, very um, pleased two of the local newspapers uh, wrote editorials about the response of the university. And both of the, the daily local papers were positive in their editorials, praising the university for its quick action, for its decisive action, um, and for um, the training that had gone in, the preparation. It, it really came together. Yes, there were some lessons learned, and yes, there were some things in the background that we thought didn't work quite well, but what the public saw was that it, it worked well, and overall, it, it really did work well. And so you can see from uh, um, some of the, the excerpts from these editorials that they, uh, that they really praised the university for uh, what had been a very stressful situation, but um, it was really handled uh, quite well. So now it's time for uh, everyone to have their shot at this, and we do have a lot of great questions. Our first one, it comes from Robert. His question is, uh, in regards to communicating with the media, do you differentiate between a university media representative and a police public information officer? Do you think that each should only speak for the area they represent? 
Here at Millersville University, what we do is, is I'm, I'm the first spokesperson. So when something happens on, on, on that day and, and the immediate follow-up when police are so busy with their investigations and reports, I'm the spokesperson. When a day has gone by and the, and the police chief or his designee can, can free themselves to talk with the media, we would like to get the police in front of, in front of the media as soon as possible. But we found during the situation, when something's actually happening, they're too busy. They need to be doing their job, so that's where I step in and talk with the media. And you really need to have an experienced and competent professional like Janet who is going to be part of your emergency response team, and, and Janet is. She is, those of you familiar with incident command structure, knows that there needs to be a public information officer, and Janet has received her NIMS training and other training, so she can act in that role for us in a real emergency. Uh, we had a comment from April, who's uh, been with us on our last webinar. Welcome back. Uh, FEMA and your state emergency management office have public information officer training available for free. Another great resource is the press conferences from Northern Illinois University after the shooting last Valentine's Day. So, April, thank you. Great comment. Question from John. How was the decision made to send the first text message? Who made the decision? Well, the in terms of sending the first text message, once it became uh, known that we could not locate the student of interest, uh, it was apparent that we need to get something out as quickly as possible. So uh, in my role as Vice President for Student Affairs, I then consulted with the Cabinet to make them aware of the situation. Uh, but then essentially it's the Vice President of Student Affairs, this was a student matter, it was an, an emergency, uh, critical condition, so the decision was made by the Vice President of Student Affairs, uh, but after consulting with the Cabinet to make them aware of the situation. How did professors respond to the alert? Did they take control of the classroom and instruct students what to do in the lockdown? Well, uh, as we mentioned earlier, there was a combination of things happening. I would say uh, many of the faculty took uh, the leadership locked down their classrooms, they took action. We also did receive reports of students who had gone through many drills uh, in high school who were informing some of our faculty of the techniques that they had honed from high school. Uh, so together, uh, I would say the faculty, along with some expertise from our students, is really what was happening on that day. Uh, the majority of the faculty, because uh, there had been some training uh, they were aware of what they needed to do, but I think our students are also very, very knowledgeable. How do you inform your student population of what lockdown means and what their responsibilities are to do to prevent the general public from interfering with a lockdown? For example, vendors, visitors, visiting scholarships and VIPs. What we have done is we have um, we've instituted a, we've given everybody on campus uh, a yellow um, it's, like, it's a card, and on that card, we define the three levels of emergency um, lockdown procedures. One is a emergency lockdown, which is um, where what we were doing on April 1st, which is to lock the doors, everybody stays inside and takes cover, actually locks the doors of the room. The second is a preventative lockdown, where we lock the exterior doors, but activities inside the building can pretty much continue 
as they were. The, the professors can still teach the class. People can go to the restrooms, et cetera. And the final level is what we call shelter in place, where we want people in the buildings to get to a central location in the building, away from windows, et cetera. And, and that's the kind of um, alert you would give for, say, an approaching tornado or something like that. We've described those three levels of response, emergency, preventative lockdown, and shelter in place, and put that onto a, uh, a small yellow card that we encourage everybody to keep at their workstation. How did students know the number to the text message to text message police at? Can people reply to the emergency notification? Well, we actually we actually um, had the police phone number in that third text message that we went out, um, and uh, apparently some students must have had a text message to uh, one of them, somebody in our police staff, and they were able to text message it. Once the individual is known by name, uh, did you check to make sure the individual you were looking for was signed up to receive text alerts? Uh, the answer to that is no. I mean, we did not have the time in this emergency to see if he had if he had signed up uh, to receive this alert. Uh, and and to be quite honest, um, we suspected he was on campus. We were very sure he was on campus for several reasons, and. Um, he, he, we've just assumed he must be know he, he must have been knowing that something was was going on, even if he didn't know it was related to him. Um, Let me just also add that we uh, had discovered his mobile phone was actually in the residence hall, so it correct. wouldn't have served much of a purpose to send out the alert over that to say we're looking for you. He did not have his cell phone on him, uh, Doctor Bro is correct. We did know that. Okay. But wouldn't have really changed anything. It wouldn't have, yeah. no. Okay. Did the text messages deliver quickly to students even when cell phone voice calls did not work? I would say that uh, for the most part, they were going out very quickly. I mean, some, if they, didn't, uh, they weren't all received simultaneously because it, it, you know, it goes into a queue and then it goes out uh, in that queue uh, in a certain order. But I would say they, it was uh, very effective in getting the information out in a timely fashion, very quickly. All right. What is a GETS card? A GETS card is it's an acronym. Uh, I apologize for not knowing the actual words, but a GETS card is a uh, system of emergency notification that uh, pretty much anybody can get. It was originally intended for emergency responders, but it is a if you go to uh, the webpage and you type in GETS, you'll find a, uh, a place you can go to uh, sign up and get a guest card. And what a guest card is, very quickly, is a, a, a card that has a cell phone number on it. And in an emergency, when cell phone traffic is down or very slow, you can dial this number, get into a priority cell phone channel that's typically reserved for emergency responders uh, and police and people like that, and that... 90, about 90% of the time, that is going to be able to get your cell phone uh, activated to where you can actually um, make a phone, phone call. I, I use the analogy that it's, it's kind of like the, the, the one lane on a 16-lane highway that's reserved for the emergency responders, and even when traffic on the 16 lanes is bumper to bumper and going nowhere, it's gridlocked, that one lane is still open and, and moving, and the get card 
is a phone number that you can get into that uh, lane of traffic and your cell phone should work. What is the advantage of immediate parental notification, especially in light of the phone crashing concern? Uh, what is the advantage of notifying the, parent, uh, the parents and family? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, that's enormous. Uh, as you might imagine, as soon as uh, an incident like this happens on the campus, students are contacting their families to say, we're on a lockdown. What then happens is you then have uh, huge numbers of families trying to reach the campus for more information to find out what's happening. Uh, so you need to get information out as quickly as, as possible, accurate information, uh, because very quickly rumors can begin spreading about what's happening on your campus. And by the time you know, the parent gets it from you know, the third person, they could have the wrong story. So you want accurate information going out quickly. And parents want to know, families want to know as soon as possible what's happening and what's being done about the situation. And that's, again, the reason why you want redundancy systems, to be able to put information up on your website, to have families uh, sign up for the alerts so they know what's going on and what their sons and daughters and families their students are seeing, so that we're having a consistent message going out from the campus to those who are concerned about what's happening on our campus. And that's another place where the media can play a role as well. And you might have a tendency to ignore the media while the incident's going on, but they can play a role in getting out the most up-to-date information that you have. You can use the media to your advantage in this case. The other thing I would say is, even if in response to the question, even though the cell, the voice cell phone communication was pretty much down, the text messaging was still pretty much alive. And parents, and we found out after the incident that parents and, and, and students, if they couldn't talk to each other, they were able to text each other, yes, I'm here, yes, I'm okay. Those kind of, that kind of communication was still up. How do you lock down your buildings quickly? Most campuses are very, are, are very unlocked and open during operating hours. Well, that's, that's obviously a big challenge. And, uh, I mean, really all, what, you should, what you can do is you can have – people identified at each of the buildings, and they can have keys to lock the exterior doors, and, um, and you need to do training for those individuals so that they know that when you go into an emergency lockdown or even a preventative lockdown, that they need to secure those doors, that they have the ability to do that because it's unrealistic to expect uh, your campus police, uh, for example, to go around, and we, as you saw by the first slide, we have something like 80-some buildings here on campus. It's unrealistic to expect them to go to every building and lock the exterior doors. You really have to have somebody at the building take charge. And and on the day of this emergency, we found that whether it was faculty or staff, they came out and they, they secured the doors. Okay. Our next question is actually a, a comment. Uh, it's an interesting comment. Um and we have thought about uh, similar communications problems. And what we have done is added the cell phone uh, company 24-hour monitoring station to our email list. When they receive the alert, they automatically boost the tower capacity and monitor it to see if they need to send a portable cell tower. For, uh, for the website, we have set up a transfer to the UW system uh, web system. That's for their university. Um, uh, 
they have additional power to host us and we can still use the internet for our daily operations. So more than one way to, to solve these issues. That's an interesting strategy. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Really appreciate the, the, the comments here. It's, uh, we can all learn best together. Uh, a final question that's come in is, uh, can you share that card document that you mentioned with us? And, you know, if you, you're either able to provide it or at least provide a link to it, we would post that to the archive page for this webca- uh, webcast. We'd be glad to get you a copy of that so you could post that for people to, to access. Perfect. Yeah, so we'll do that. And so uh, we will um, we'll get that document. And once this webcast is archived, that's at the E2 Campus website, the sponsor, uh, that document will be there as well. Um, and oh, I'm going to squeeze in one more question because we've got about two minutes here. Uh, another question from Ann. Uh, locking exterior doors, can people still get out? What about a fire? Uh, yeah, the panic bars will still work. To, to an emergency, uh, you can still get, get out of the doors uh, it's to prevent people from coming in. Very good. All right. Well, what can I say? That's, this has been wonderful information. I appreciate all of you uh, joining us here today on the Best Practices in Emergency Notification Systems webinar series. And thank you all for joining us. I want to especially thank Dr. Amita Bro. Janet Kaskus and Patrick Whitinger of Millersville University for sharing your story and your success so that we can all learn from that and become a little better in our own emergency response. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everyone. Thank you all for joining us for the Best Practices in Emergency Notification Series webinar. And our next Emergency Notification Systems webinar is Emergency Notification Systems 101, presented by Pennsylvania State University. It's on Tuesday, November 18 at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Penn State adopted an emergency notification system during the summer of 2006 and has used it many times, so they're a pioneer. And this webinar will take a multifaceted view of the ENS paradigm and review all the aspects of implementing one. It's free, it's 60 minutes long, and we hope you will join us. You're going to learn considerations when selecting a notification vendor, identifying who is authorized to send emergency alerts, training your system users to send alerts, developing your communications plan to roll out the system, the importance of testing, types of alerts to send and when to send them, how to manage your dispatch center after an alert is sent, the importance of joining a relevant user group, and of course answers to your questions. So we'll do it all again. That's November 18 at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for joining us for the best practices in emergency notification systems. I'm Steve Hardiman. Make it a safe day. 